0: Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. As regular listeners know, here at Below the Line, we are covering the Oscars. All month, I'm hosting panels of film industry professionals to discuss the nominees in their category of expertise, and this is the sixth of 10 episodes. Today, we're talking about original score, and I'm happy to welcome back some friends of the show. Louis Weeks, media and film composer. Welcome
1: back. Hey, good to be back.
0: Also back is Chris Malamphy, chart analyst, pop critic, and host of the Slate podcast Hit Parade. Chris, glad you're here.
2: Glad to be back, Skin.
0: And joining us for the first time, Jenny Armand, an executive producer and music supervisor with more than 15 years working in the music industry. Welcome.
3: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Listeners, if you want to learn more about my guests, one place you can look is on the Internet Movie Database. These guests also have an online presence outside of the movies, and you can find them with a Google search. The five films recognized for achievement in music, written for motion pictures, also known as Original Score, are All Quiet on the Western Front, Babylon, The Banshees of Inisherin, Everything Everywhere All at Once, and The Fablements. We're going to discuss them in that order, and spoilers for the films are possible, so consider this a warning. Additionally, I'm offering my apologies in advance in case I mispronounce the names of any nominees. First up, Vocal Bertelman for All Quiet on the Western Front.
1: common theme for me for all of these nominees is that the scores are so intimately in conversation with the way that the film is made. Obviously that sounds like a, a seriously obvious thing to say. but the nominees for these films are extremely in tune and even on a, like a meta level with the filmmaking. Um, and this score is a great example. Of all the nominees, it's probably the least about the content and more about the filmmaking itself, I think. Watching this film was really hard. <laughs> it's like an absolute, yeah. Yeah, an absolutely brutal experience, which obviously feels like it was intentional. The filmmaking, however, is disturbingly gorgeous. In, in a way, it's like hard not to think about the impact of someone like Denis Villeneuve or even Alex Garland two filmmakers who were kind of hyper pristine kind of this like a metallic massive smooth quality to their work and listening to this score it's kind of in conversation with the scores of say dune or the scores of uh something like annihilation a kind of maximalist minimalism that takes an idea like a g minor triad that dum dom dum and blows it up so in that sense the score really understands the 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 cinematic language of the film i think it really understands that the director is in conversation with these other massive blockbusters on a visual level and i think that that's kind of the main takeaway from the music that i got the music is very moving it's very upsetting at times it is in a way it's like it's very hands-off Other than the massive G minor triad that hits you out of nowhere or the the snare roll, Uh, which incidentally, I think, is a really interesting choice because all of the scary jump scare musical moments happen during the bureaucratic storylines. They don't happen during the war settings. They don't happen in the action sequences. They happen during the the moments of bureaucracy, which I, I think is a real statement about where the horror Uh, lies in in this story. Obviously it's on the battlefield, but it's also in the kind of machine that's grinding behind the scenes that's forcing this conflict just into this grinding halt. So I I I think in a way, like the the takeaway for for me for this score was that the composer, who is definitely not a new name in filmmaking, and, and we've heard... His work before possibly under a different moniker haushka which is a huge deal in the indie music world and also the kind of indie filmmaking world of the 2000s the main takeaway for me from the mu- this music was that the music understands visually where this piece of work wants to position itself um, and it's using the language of film music to reinforce that this film is in conversation with some of the big blockbusters like Dune, or like Annihilation, or kind of the big art pieces that we've seen over the last five, 10 years.
3: Yeah, I I agree. And I love that you mentioned what is like behind the scenes because I always felt like the entire time I was watching this, and I'm actually really glad that I had to watch this because I probably would have never watched this on my own. You know, to have an anti-war movie from the 1930s remake and reiterating the same issues of war and having that bubbling underneath. It was like it's almost like this fluttering that you can feel. It's a, you it's an uneasiness that we should have politically about war. And it's it's just this stirring of just continuous, unfortunate heartbreak. And I felt like the the score completely translated that even in these beautiful moments when the field was just sunny and beautiful you still felt uneasy and I I like that they put the viewer in that seat
2: I was struck in the score by how and I mean this I guess as a compliment how incongruous it felt with the milieu of this you know movie set in World War One frankly what it reminded me of it was the first thing that leapt to mind was um, Vangelis' score for Chariots of Fire. It is often said that in Chariots of Fire, here you have this movie that takes place in the 20s, and yet it's got this extremely 80s score with one of the most iconic synthesizer melodies of all time. And similarly, that brum, 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 which by the way, reminds me of the noise in Inception, the Christopher Nolan movie, that brum that keeps hitting over and over again. It's It's got this, a similar feel, um, the way it it makes you jolt in your seat. But the, the the incongruity of this score to what you would think a World War One movie would sound like. I don't know that it would sound necessarily like, I don't know, ragtime of the 1910s, but you might picture something a little more classical. And this is sort of defiantly incongruous. And it kind of works. It It sets a mood that fills you with dread. And I think dread is exactly the mood this movie wants to set you up with. I think there's a bit of debate about this movie now that it has wound up the second most nominated movie in this year's Oscars. I've read everything from wild raves for this movie to an article on Slate, if you look it up, that says that German audiences hate this movie and think it's uh, gratuitous and, you know, rubbing your face in the, um, you know, war is bad motif. I fall somewhere in the middle. I'm with Jenny that it's a movie I might not have been compelled to watch had I not realized it was going to be up for a lot of awards. But the score is a statement and it's it's deliberate and it's, it's meant to unsettle you. The last thing I'll mention is, um, since I always talk about the meta story, I think in this category this year, we have four previous nominees and one newbie. This is not the newbie because um, Hauschka, as we're calling him, was nominated previously um, for Lion in 2017. Uh, They didn't win. And uh, when I say they, I believe they were nominated with uh, Dustin O'Halloran that year for for 2016's Lion. So this is their second time at bat. And I'd love to know if you guys have any opinions about them as, as a score composer, but they are not a shy retiring score composer. Hoshka is, is definitely a statement maker, it seems to me.
1: You know, I think you touched on something that's, that really makes a lot of sense. Volker's work is both in the film space, but also in a kind of commercial space as well. Volker's worked with some of the leading like sample makers. Basically, Volker is making tools that other film composers use.
2: Hmm, interesting.
1: And so there is a kind of investment there in the tools of the craft that's ongoing, but also it it is kind of a feedback loop where, like you know, the Hauschka sound is becoming very synonymous with the sound of commercial music and the sound of film composing in some circles. So the impact is kind of wide and also kind of feeding back into itself in a way. If that makes sense. I think also that what's interesting about this score is that it takes a very contemporary approach of what, you know, Jenny and I, we've we've called like the signature sound approach where sound departments will kind of blur the lines between sound design and compositional elements in the way that they're repeated or used. Um, And that triad really feels kind of like a piece of sound design And it's used as a kind of punctuating sound moment as opposed to like a typical piece of music that develops and has different iterations and kind of um, unfurls in musical ways. And so I think that it makes a statement about the story when it uses that, but it also is very much in conversation with contemporary film composition techniques. There's something about it that makes it feel this is very 2020s to me, which you know, could be really good. it could also hurt the film in the next couple of decades. I think you're right, it doesn't sound like a World War One movie and there's probably a statement behind that, but it does date itself in the moment right now, the question is, is it abstract enough for future audiences to feel the feeling of that sound rather than hearing, oh, there's that signature sound, the Brahm, that we, you know, like the inception sound, the thing that audiences have have come to pick up on um, these techniques. And, And so like, I think that this use of it is on the more musical side. And so I think it's, it tends to age better, but we'll see. I mean, that's, that's the risk of doing a score like this is that it is very effective in the moment but it might date itself.
3: Yeah. And I agree. I mean, Hauschka slash uh, Vogel. In their earlier career, they collaborated with a lot of very um, experimental, classical, neoclassical artists like the Kronos Quartet and Mum and ugh, Calexico. So like there's a lot of outside influences that are incredibly subtle in the score. And it comes out in very small moments, just playing off of what you're saying, Louis, as far as just like the, the signature drone versus those quiet moments for instance when he when one of the the main character is looking up at these you know big uh, missiles and bombs going off in in the sky and it's this beautiful moment where it's his first night there he's reflecting on almost like fireworks and it's this very subtle undertone that you can feel like something woven into it that isn't a new approach to something that's already been done. And that's why I really liked it.
1: I also think that we should talk about how the Hauschka sound is pretty synonymous with prepared piano. It's just the practice in music of sticking, for lack of a better term, whether precisely or imprecisely, objects into a piano to create a more percussive kind of extended technique sound. This is you know, something that John Cage did, and, and it's part of the 20th century sound. It's very interesting to me that prepared piano wasn't in this film because if I was Volker and this was my thing and I was given a film about the early 20th century, the end of the, like the romantic era coming to a screeching halt, like I can't think of a better image than a messed up piano, you know, screws and nuts and bolts inside a piano. And maybe that's because I'm too literal and, but The impulse to not do that is interesting. And I think it maybe signals a a difference in approach. Whether we refer to this artist as Hauschka or Volker, it's the same artist, different pen names. And it's often interesting to me when some artists decide, okay, this material is going to go into this pen name and this material is going to go into that pen name. I think it's a conscious decision, but it it tells you a lot about the the frame of mind and the, the artistic goals of the musician. Anyway, it, that's kind of an aside, but I do think that it's this is a very different score from, say, like Little Miss Sunshine, which is one of my favorites and also a Hauschka score. But you can just see a kind of evolution both of of the form and also of the artist if you look at those two back to back. Next
0: up, Justin Hurwitz for Babylon.
3: I love this score. It brought me back to the days when I was playing the trumpet and the tuba.
0: (laughs) Wow,
2: we're finding out so much about Jenny here. This is awesome. (laughs) Jenny, at the same time?
3: (laughs) Well, I got braces so the mouthpiece wouldn't fit with with the trumpet, so I had to upgrade. Also being one of a few players is, you know, a good way to fast track yourself. But um, I, I love jazz, I love traditional jazz, and this brought me so much joy to listen to. And also the fact that the film really highlighted a, a very iconic jazz player. I love the way that this specific track, Manny and Nelly's theme, at the risk of giving spoiler, you know, it's somewhat of a tragic love story that is very hidden by a lot of other elements and I feel like the score overall really highlights that as far as like how they're weaving in this common theme not of Manny and Nelly's theme but of the horn stabs and um, just this like reiteration of this of this iconic period when films transitioned from being silent to talkies and the struggle that came with that you know, not just for society, but obviously for, for artists and actors and how they adjusted to that new time. So I feel like this is a, a very beautiful lament to these two iconic individuals that you really come to love for better or worse. And ultimately, what came of that story. So I, I love this track. It's beautiful
2: and it recurs throughout the score right i mean it's uh it's it's classic score work in the sense that that little melody we just heard comes back and back and back again like a motif and in fact it's played at different tempos even uh, throughout the score
3: yeah it's really woven in and you always come back as a viewer you know for better or worse to like these two people that are continuing to travel through this crazy world so I love that it was woven in throughout it and it just it's like a continuous reminder of like almost something they're trying to accomplish, you know, and doing it in a, a very beautifully tragic way.
1: Yeah. I mean, I th- I think that if I had to sum up what I think this film is saying, which is very hard because like that crazy Hollywood. <laughs> there's a lot going on in this movie. It's a lot. Um, I, I feel like the takeaway statement is like. They don't make them like they used to, right? And the film is kind of like unsure about its role in that. And I think that the music, again, with this, my theme of like the music being really, really in tune with the, how the movie feels, I think the music is deeply torn about they don't make them like they used to when it comes to film scores. I say that in the sense that like there's something really, really old school about this score in the sense that it really heavily features soloists old film scores they like absolutely lived and died by the performances of a few unnamed individuals you know there are scores out there that would not exist if it were not for the session trumpet player who everybody wanted and they got them and it's now okay now it sounds like um now it sounds like alien or like okay now it sounds you know what i mean there's this culture of featured soloists that go uncredited for the most part, but that absolutely like the composers rely on to make it sound like a Hollywood thing. That's a jazz thing too. And it's a, it's a film, old film score thing too. So this film has that in spades, especially in the party sequences and it's, it's so cool and it's so old school, but there's other parts of it too. that are like really, really contemporary in terms of the ways that it references dance music and the ways that it references a kind of like funhouse mirror version of like house music, there are some sequences. It's very repetitive. It's very loop-like. All of these things happen from contemporary technologies like the computer and jumping way ahead to the end of this film, spoiler alert.
2: Talk about that because I feel like that's the key to how this movie feels about the past and the future.
1: Yes. It's unclear. Um, This montage at the end it's hard for me to tell if the film is saying, uh, we ruined it. We had a good thing going and we we messed it all up. You know, and like, here's Avatar. And like, here's, or is it saying, holy crap, the movies are amazing. And um, look at the technology that we have has changed, but like the feeling is still the same. It's unclear to me, because the film is so deeply cynical and kind of aspirational at the same time, it's very hard for me to tell if the movie thinks that, they don't make them like they used to, or like, we're doing great, let's keep this party going, just with the tools that we have available to us. The music similarly, I think, is kind of asking the same question. Is the score like in these moments of, you know, like Coke Room, uh, for example. Let me play a little portion of that for our audience. <laughs> that cute same theme but kind of viewed through the lens of early jazz mixed with like house music using the same looping textures and chord progressions that you would find in like basically techno in, in that way this film is very much like the visuals we're seeing and like the story we're seeing a kind of just giant question mark like is the technology that's available to us allowing us to make the art of old <laughs> or are, are we like kind of past that era and like the characters who like lost it all once the talkies hit, like we're just never going back.
3: I love that you say giant question mark because at the end there was a giant question mark above my head. I was like, what did I just experience?
2: (laughs) That montage is crazy. Yeah.
3: It made no sense, but maybe it does based on Louis's theory. I love that you pointed out as far as soloists because Justin Hurwitz is it's just iconic for really spotlighting soloists with Whiplash, with La La Land. Like mm-hmm. he has really done a really amazing job at spotlighting something very strong and making it, you know, the entire part that really drives you in. I can't tell you the amount of times I've gotten references for Whiplash,
1: yes.
3: and La La Land was was iconic. I mean, it really it changed the way people watch films, and and I think this film does too. Like there's um with with the Coke Room. I felt like immediately transported into a Budos band uh, concert. Like I felt like I was slinking around, feeling badass and cool, kind of like, what's the mystery? Just so much fun. And then visually, I mean, I felt such vibes. I know this isn't a film review, but of Moulin Rouge, um, just excess, excessive beauty and dripping with diamonds and even down to the iconic performer. Yeah, I think that that's a really good way to point out that these soloists really shine with Justin, and he relies on them a lot. He puts a lot of money behind them.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and and, I think also the cast itself is is for soloists, and some of them are more heavily used than others. And I think that the film understands that it's living and dying by the magnetism of these individuals on, on screen and also in the score. And I think that's really great. It's a very old school way to make music for films. And it's a very old school way to make films in general, because as the shift towards a kind of scalable technology happens in music, where it's like, okay, well, let's let's use uh, synths to do this. Let's use samples to do this. Let's use kind of the power that's unlocked by using many people. It's harder to find soloists that can kind of like grab your attention and just hold you there for what, how long is this movie? Like over three hours. Over three (laughs) Three hours. hours. It's a very long movie. It's a
2: slog. Yeah.
1: I think that it's all about this, like the power of the soloist for me with this film.
2: I'm so, so glad that Jenny brought up Moulin Rouge in particular, because I was already going to make a Baz Luhrmann analogy with this film. I'm getting big time Moulin Rouge vibes from the movie. I'm also even getting, and it's something Louis said, Elvis vibes in the sense that what Elvis was trying to do was take 50s pastiche and weld it to modern day pastiche, modern day you know techno and electro pop. There's even a hit on there from Doja Cat on the Elvis soundtrack that welds Hound Dog to modern day hip hop. There's a more classicist version of that happening with this Justin Hurwitz score. If you listen to Coke Room, it's not quite all the way to techno and house music, but you're right, Louis, that it's got the same frenetic pace and compositional approach that you associate with techno. And I do think, to your point, Louis, the final montage, I I think we're all fearlessly spoiling that because I don't think you can talk about this movie without talking about that final montage because it seems like the the key to unlocking the whole movie is in that final montage. I do think it is meant to be optimistic. I do think Damien Chazelle as a director is a fundamentally, I'm going to take old Hollywood and bring it to the 21st century kind of guy. And I do think he he wants to be optimistic about the future of movies, even as he has the Diego character, you know, almost weeping for the future and realizing that you know, the moment that, that he had, uh, sorry, the Manny Torres character played by Diego Calva, the, the moment that he's had has passed, and his time is past, and there's a long future ahead, um, and you can you can hear that leaking out in this score. You know, the Hollywood community and the music branch must really love Justin Hurwitz because this is one of the very few nominations that this film got. It did not make the Best Picture race. None of the actors made the acting races. Obviously, Damien Chazelle, who has won Best Director before, did not make the director race. And yet here's Hurwitz, again, the guy who won for La La Land about five years ago, up for another Oscar. So clearly he is respected and beloved in you know the community.
1: I think that the binary star in this year's um, categories for Babylon is the Fablemans. You know, obviously in terms of music and in terms of what the film was about, but I think Hurwitz has a chance if it weren't for that pesky John Williams being in the mix. I think it's that's kid.
3: That old guy. <laughs> yeah.
1: We'll wait to see what he does with the rest of his career. Um, <laughs> I, in a movie that's so frenetic and it's, It's so all over the place. The score really did kind of glue it all together. I also think it does something that's really difficult to do, maybe just for me, but I really really am very critical about films that mix diegetic sound with non-diegetic, meaning Mm. sound that's in the film, you can see the players performing, and sound that's coming from the hand of the composer. It's a touchy subject for me because I feel like it's often overdone and it's not done sensitively and it's not done musically this film really does a very good job and a very thoughtful job of blurring the lines between like oh, wait is that like happening in the room or is that um and we now in the world of score and it helps when one of your main characters is a musician on screen
2: sydney palmer
1: yes and i think that we should have had a lot more of that storyline in this film
2: yeah Uh giovanna Adepo does a great job in the movie i think he's wonderful
1: incredible and if any if there's any part of the movie that didn't turn over every stone it, it was that part agreed so i mean maybe we'll get a sequel that would be great
2: i wouldn't bet on it but uh, no. <laughs> my one last thought in terms of you know themes running throughout you know it's notable that the, the the musical motif that we played at the beginning of this segment is called manny and nelly's theme because really those are the two characters they're the through line for the whole movie and by the way, Manny is is the Diego Rivera character. It's not the Brad Pitt character. The Brad Pitt character is how they're se- how they tried to sell this movie. He's mm-hmm. Brad Pitt, but really, it's the uh, Diego Calva character, and it's the Margot Robbie character who you follow throughout the film. And in a similar mo- way to the way a jazz motif works, and frankly, as you two would know better than me, the way a score motif works that's the melody that belongs to Manny and Nelly and keeps recurring over and over again. And I, I do think that's very effective.
3: Yeah. Also did anyone get like Westworld vibes at all?
2: Oh, that's interesting.
3: This saloon scene, you know, in, in Westworld, I don't know. Just it's just this like this sad kind of like strong theme. Um, I also got like very like gypsy music and in, in waves, which kind of lines up with Nellie's character. I don't know. I always try to make comparisons of what I'm watching, but this was definitely very unique. And then the the classic film scenes as well, where um, Justin Hurwitz just shines with his just like.
1: Yeah. When that butterfly lands on Brad Pitt's shoulder, the music is doing exactly what it's supposed to do. It's just <laughs> like perfect. No notes. You nailed it.
0: The third on our list is Carter Burwell for The Banshees of Innishirid.
3: was tough to watch (laughs) wow not for the faint of heart
1: (laughs) oh my god Um, i loved it eliminating fingers is not uh,
2: your jam jenny
3: (laughs) not on a daily basis no
0: no me neither not very many days in a row anyway that's uh, yeah
3: particularly
2: if you're a musician watching a musician chop off their own fingers has got to be not pleasant for you
1: I have thoughts on this. We'll get to that.
3: There is yes. a def- definitely a much deeper lesson in this. But what I loved with the score, and I mean this this track, it's so beautiful, and there is this just almost like fairy tale innocence that is just like repetitive throughout this film and and it's humor as well even though it's really dark <laughs> dark humor
2: didn't you see it, it one in the musical or comedy category at the Golden Globes so somehow somebody thinks it's a comedy the darkest damn comedy I've ever seen but go ahead
3: I mean my mouth was on the ground my jaw was dropped I I could not believe it but um you know Colin Farrell's character is is incredibly naive and and just doesn't get it and i feel like this score really supports his naivety and his outlook on just being a good person and trying and continuing to try to get this friendship that was so vital to him Um, and to, you know, stave off his boredom (laughs) in such a boring town. Um, I I loved the the way that traditional Irish fiddle was kind of, you know, dispersed throughout. And it kept on going back to the innocence of it, even though, again, such dark subject matter and such a, a sad experience to really make his character really lovable and to just empathize with him it was a ride y'all
2: i agree that it was a ride i am not an enormous fan of martin mcdonough's films i'll be honest uh i pretty actively hated three billboards outside of ebbing missouri i liked this one considerably better it's definitely fairy tale like. I sort of feel like McDonough writes for the stage and then they turn into movies. That's kind of my my snarky criticism of him is that the, his his sort of magical realist stuff sort of feels more like theatrical than filmic to me. One thing I will say for this score, since that's what we're here to discuss, is um, Carter Burwell is a tremendous talent, and this score defied some of my preconceived notions of what. A score for a film set on a mystic island in Ireland would sound like. There's no tin whistle. There's not a whole lot of, you know, stereotypical instrumentation. The piece we just listened to definitely has that twinkliness to it, but it's not the kind of twinkliness you would necessarily have assumed it would sound like. And it's a mood. And uh, I appreciated that mood. It, it carried me through the more grand Guignol, fantastical elements of the finger chopping and all of the other sadness that happened throughout this so-called comedy. But that's all I'll say for now.
1: I, I'm really thinking now about your point about McDonough writing for, for the stage and then feeling like it's adapted into film. Carter Burwell, to me, has a very stage uh, aesthetic Interesting in my mind. You know, he's done some radio plays before, which is a very old school thing to do. I, there's something about his willingness, I think, to follow the emotional arc of the characters with a very kind of incidental music approach. In the kind of like, okay, well, the character's going to walk over here. The music's going to follow them over there. The character's going to walk over here. The music's going to follow them over there. Not in a Mickey Mouse kind of way, but, but there's a real kind of sense that he's just off the stage and he's watching playing piano. Maybe that's me just projecting, but I've always felt with Carter Burwell's work that he was there on the stage, you know, like part of the production, but just off in the shadows, right? As opposed to, you know, some composers, you think of them, they're in the concert hall, they're making the giant pieces of work to the screen. What it does is it it creates this amazing sense of intimacy. A lot of Carter Burwell's music is just so intimate. It's perfect for chamber pieces. I love his harmonic language. I think of, of like, all of the music that's nominated this year, I think that I personally like Carter Burwell's stuff the best, uh, but that's just you know my personal opinion. Also, having spent a little bit of time living in Ireland, I feel very confident in this feeling that I have that I will never understand this movie having never... Been born in Ireland. <laughs> There's something profoundly Irish, obviously, about the experience in a way that's that's not um, not a stereotype, but the subtext is all about a kind of shared experience and like shared trauma and shared sense of isolation and shared like uh, haunting. Basically, like this is about a haunting. My personal thing about this movie: spoiler alert. We're going to talk about what happens to the, the Gleason character is that I have a feeling that this movie is all about a musician dealing with a failed aspiration. I think that this character was looking for a reason to not make music anymore. And I think that they were looking for a reason to chop off their own fingers and they just decided to blame it on Colin Farrell. This movie is, to me, is all about what happens if you have grand ambitions and you just, you like, it doesn't happen. Which is so funny because that is exactly what babylon's about but it's a completely different movie a completely different take and i think to your point i just kept feeling all of the like keyboard parts the celeste and the harp and the piano all the finger related instruments in the score and thinking about like oh okay well i think carter brewer really wants me to think about fingers right now i think there's something really like deep in a kind of like jokey way about the score this is very, very rambling, but I really do think that Carter Burwell thinks really, really hard about the script and about like being a part of the the performance. Every every composer thinks hard about the script, but I think Carter Burwell, I, I just always think of him as on stage with them.
3: I interpreted like the overall message as how to extract yourself from something that's not working the things that you have to do to get through that and the elements that you need to sacrifice sometimes to walk away from something that's not working. That's how I interpret it, which is a much more like larger global level. But I I like your approach to that too, your interpretation.
1: Again, I think that this film is just more of a question. It really, and that's what I think makes it to me kind of capital A art. It's really just like asking a bunch of questions rather than giving us some answers. My issue with Babylon was that at times it felt very didactic, in like the way that I think its references avoided. So, like I think about Boogie Nights and I think about um, Wolf of Wall Street, two films that it was clearly modeling itself after. And those films, in their more didactic moments, they avoid it by just kind of focusing on like the characters really being in the moment and kind of expressing their inner lives. Banshees does that really well. These, like, I don't think I've seen better acting in a very long time than this film. Just like truly incredible chemistry between the, the characters.
2: Yeah. I mean, for the record, for all my quibbles with the movie, all four actors and all four are nominated. All deserve to be there. I think they all did spectacular work. In terms of Carter Burwell, this is, I think, his third time getting nominated for Best Score at the Academy Awards. He was nominated for Three Billboards, the previous McDonough film, and he was also nominated for Todd Haynes' Carol. And to your point, Louis, about him being on stage with the production, if you will, I mean, he's worked on so many Coen Brothers films. Mm -hmm. Directors seem to keep coming back to him. So he must be one of those score composers who partners so closely with the storyteller that they want to use him over and over again. There's a reason why I see Carter Burwell's name on all sorts of films I see every year around award season, whether they get nominated or not. He's going to win sooner or later. I would bet he's a pretty good shot this year, not because this particular score necessarily screams out, I am awards worthy, but only because if there's a groundswell for Anna Sharon in the awards, I doubt there'll be a sweep but you know, there, there may be multiple awards for this film. You could see a scenario where Carter Burwell takes it for this
1: one. The music is deserving. The only thing I push back on that prediction is that it doesn't read as capital M music yes. to the, the voters of the Academy. I don't think people would imagine themselves going to see this concert the way that they might go to see Coke Room being performed live at the Troubadour, or like seeing a John Williams Fableman score at the Disney Hall. I really do think that when it comes to this award, the perception of capital M music really dictates a lot of how people respond to it. It has a lot to do with like, is there a melody? Is this performable? Obviously I've been proven wrong a bunch of times, but I, I think that for in this case, it's so in the background and it's so like, you're just looking at that bloody hand and you're like, yeah, <laughs> that's that's kind of the most important thing about this film.
2: My only counterargument to that is last year when we did this, we were not predicting that Hans Zimmer was going to take it.
1: I was just thinking that, yeah.
2: For June, and that was music that didn't feel terribly musical. It felt score-like and it's happened. So we'll see what happens, I guess.
1: You know what? It's anybody's guess. You're totally right. right.
3: There's also an art to staying out of the way. Agreed. It comes up a lot where the filmmaker is kind of battling with the composer or with other elements to really stay at the forefront of telling that story. So I do respect Carter a lot with just elevating versus, you know, (laughs) blocking um, the film because it, it was very subtle. I had to watch it a couple times, unfortunately, <laughs> in order to really get the vibe and really hear all, all of those really subtle moments. But I do appreciate that as a quality characteristic.
1: I love that elevating versus blocking. A really great distinction, Jenny. You're here. Thanks.
0: Our fourth nominee is Sun Lux for Everything, Everywhere, All Once. For those who are not aware, Sunlux is an LA-based experimental post-rock band composed of keyboardist and vocalist Ryan Watt, guitarist Rafik Batia, and drummer Ian Cheng.
3: I don't know about you guys, but I think this is an obvious winner this year. <laughs> but I'm ready to go to battle for that. I was doing some research about this film and it took Sunlux as a as a group three to six years to compose this. You can see it. I felt like Matrix vibes because it's basically like telling the story of multiple universes happening at the same time. I know that gives away a lot, but I actually looked it up and they gave the composer for the Matrix credit actually on this. So it's like kind of like tapping into all these things, breaking down different fragments always having this like pulsating element that you could feel other things are happening all around you at the same time. I was blown away. And actually a very funny story that I'll tell very quickly. I was in Amsterdam when I first saw this film. (laughs) And unfortunately, the subtitles were all in Dutch. So I did not really know what was going on in these very pivotal moments, but I did rush to the bathroom and ask a daughter and her mother, what happened with the rock scene? What happened in the the back alleyway? But the music really translated a lot of that. And it's, I mean, it is like a beautiful, deep K hole into magnificence for me.
2: I think K hole into magnificence has got to be a quote somewhere. They should put that on a sticker on the score album.
1: That that is incredible. Totally brilliant. (laughs) Jenny, I think this is such a cool score. Again, it's like very deeply in conversation with the way that this film was made in terms of it's got a kind of handmade meticulousness that is only possible through just like incredible amounts of iteration and incredible amounts of just working at it. This score is made to me in the tradition of record making rather than it being a kind of uh, score that was made for an ensemble that was that performed at one time or over the course of a couple of days at a sound stage, um, which I'm sure they did elements of that. But its editing and its sound design and its recording techniques are such a huge part of what makes the score. It really has more in common, I think, with a pop record than it does something like the Fablement score. Now, that is, again, that's a tradition of electronic music and filmmaking that goes back as old as synthesizers. But I think that it makes it unique in the category because it sonically is really more reminiscent of a kind of full broadband record and it's produced that way. And it sounds that way. I think that it just drips with energy and personality because of it. And it really is kind of an elevation of the form, you know, kind of like an indie thriller or an, an indie adventure movie. I, I think that, it's really charming and I think it's really cool. And it also is like, also in conversation with other Sunlux records too, which like Hauschka has some crossover with neoclassical world and there's a lot of of overlap there. To me, it's it's not as immediate. Um, It's, well, let me put it this way. It's so crucial to the film and it's so tied to the film that I think it's hard to imagine it without it. There are other pieces of music In this nominee list where you can listen to the piece of music and be like, oh, okay. You know, I've actually heard a lot of people being like, I didn't like Babylon, but I listened to this to the score. You know, it's kind of hard to imagine doing that with this score. And I think that's that is a huge plus. I think it's like so wed to the film and it's so embedded in the story that it's just part and parcel of the film itself.
2: Yeah, I think this may be my favorite of the five nominees, if if only for the sheer variety. First of all, the score is something like 78 tracks. And, you know, some of them are like little incidental pieces of business and some of them are full blown songs. It's surprising how many of them are full blown songs. Also, it should be noted this is the only one of our nominees this year that also has a best song nominee. Um, so, uh, Ryan Lott, the prime mover behind Sun Lux, is also up for the David Byrne and Mitsky song, This Is a Life. And that plays as a real song song to Louis point. And that may well help this score in the you know final vote. Never mind the fact that everything everywhere has the most nominees of any movie. Uh, so if there's a sweep again, if it doesn't favor in a share and it could just as easily favor everything everywhere. But there's an indie pop vibe to this, but also a sheer eclectic throw it all in the blender vibe to this that is absolutely in keeping with the spirit of the movie. The movie's called Everything Everywhere All At Once. This score is Everything Everywhere All At Once. And that's kind of what I love about it. There are some very beautiful pieces in here that are quite contemplative and still. And then there are manic pieces that, you know, are just lots of fun and kind of balls to the wall. And it all kind of works together. The only thing that I think might my- prevent it from from taking the win is to louis point do people view this as not song like enough but i think the fact that it has a best song nominee on it albeit not a hit right like last year we were talking about the encanto score having a hit on the charts mm-hmm. we're not talking about one of those this year but still having a song by david and mitzke on your score album doesn't hurt in the running
3: Totally. And I love that you said put it in blender because I totally feel that way too. Almost every single sound, aside from the very just like pure classical elements, was manipulated. I mean, they even foiled uh, violins and they took samples of Stephanie Sue's uh, voice saying a bagel. And, you know, their every single element just was manipulated. And I love that. and And I love their collaborators too. Andre 3000 um, played five different tracks, the flute, he brought like six or seven different flutes to play. (laughs) I can't believe Randy Newman had a song in there as well. And Moses Sumney, and then just like Tossin and a clair de lune, you know, like there, there is so much happening. And it is just a joyous ride. And obviously, and why music as well, like mm-hmm. your instrumentation, you're looking at the pinky fight scene, and you're feeling like a 70s like soul song, like <laughs> groove. I don't know. It's it is just it is everything everywhere. And I I loved every minute.
0: Finally, John Williams is nominated for the Fablements.
1: I get so deeply emotional thinking about john williams and specifically like john williams's relationship with steven spielberg the piano cues in this film they make me think about that amazing piece of footage of spielberg and john williams sitting together at john's piano where he's playing steven the theme to et on piano and he's like, I'm thinking about doing something like this. And he like plays the theme, and Steven's like, Oh yeah, that's that's good, you know. And it's just like a casual like conversation, and they're just like changing the game forever. And when I hear these piano cues in this score, it's so moving to me because it's so this movie's so deeply autobiographical from a Spielberg perspective, obviously. But you can't really talk about Spielberg without talking about John Williams. Um, I think in an interview, he referred to John Williams as the last and final writer of of all of his scripts. And I think that's such an amazing way to think about a film composer. It's a very generous way to think about a film composer, viewing them as part of the storytelling team, which obviously they are, but that doesn't get acknowledged very often. But the relationship between this film and music is a deeply moving one. I also find it to be a little bit um, conflicted. And I think that on the one hand the film is expressing a lot of love for music, especially in the scenes where uh, the mother's playing piano and there's lots of great needle drop moments from classical piano repertoire. But there's also a kind of, um, as we follow Sammy's journey through filmmaking, he's mostly working with silent film because he just has a handheld camera. And it's really, the film itself is saying to me like, Filmmaking is a beautiful process and it's it's akin to the like akin to adolescence of kind of gaining all these perspectives, but it's missing the music aspect. And I just thought it was very interesting that in a lot of ways the film is like obviously, you know, pardon the phrase a love letter to film, but it's missing the key ingredient or it doesn't acknowledge the key ingredient, which is that the music is what kind of alchemizes all of the emotional material. And I think if they try to do that, there's some scenes where Sammy is playing the record player while he's showing his films. And that's a good little like workaround. But I I fear that a lot of people will walk away from this film being like, wow, filmmaking is so amazing. And all I need is a camera. When in reality, like, yes, all you need is a camera, but you also need a John Williams. (laughs) You know, you also need that genius on the other side sitting at the piano playing the E.T. theme for you. And I think that with that knowledge, like that, this movie really moved me, like knowing that this, this is all about Steven Spielberg as much as it is about John Williams. But I think that the movie kind of loses that a little bit.
3: Definitely. And I felt like actually the scored portion was very sparse, very minimal. I do agree with you, Louis, as far as their friendship. Like you can hear the love and the celebration of Steven Spielberg's life with the Fableman title track. It's a, it's a love song <laughs> to, yeah. to his, his, his buddy and his partner for so long collaborator. So Yeah. But I I was actually, you know, watching it, I I was a little confused at first. I was like, why was this nominated? And then of course you understand the beauty of, you know, of the film and the tie in with John Williams, who will forever be an icon in our field, but it was missing that aspect, which is ironic because of their love and relationship and respect for each other, for him to just Accidentally cut out someone so iconic, but but if you look at it on, on the you know the chronological timeline of like when they met, I'm sure he was past that point in the film in his life.
1: I don't think that it's like a, a um, an omission, and I think a lot of it has to do with logistically. Like I think that um, this is probably John Williams' final film. He claims
2: he's not retiring. He he claimed he's un- he retired and then unretired. So okay, don't count that
1: kid out. I'm not going to count him out, but it's possible that what we're seeing is just a kind of uh, change in process for someone like John Williams. Um, sure. And if he's not retired, then he's a busy dude. There's a lot of things that factor into how much or how little of this, this mega icon's music would would make it in here. Um, it's just, I just love John Williams and I want there to be more. That's all.
2: <laughs> when I said before that I thought we hadn't talked about the likely winner yet, I was predicting that this might take it. And there's an interesting meta story going on with both Steven Spielberg and John Williams in this year's Oscar race, which is that Both are perceived as wildly over-awarded. And in fact, neither of them has won in decades. Um, They're both kind of owed. Spielberg, despite the fact that nobody thinks Fableman's is likely to take best picture, a lot of people think Spielberg is likely to take best director because he hasn't taken it since Saving Private Ryan way back in 1998. And Spielberg has only won best director twice, which when you consider the length and durability of his career is actually a somewhat small number of Best director wins. Similarly, John Williams has won, I think, five times out of his record 53 nominations. I think, after Walt Disney, he's the most nominated person in Academy Awards history. And yet, there was a narrative, and I think I referred to this when we did this last year. There was a narrative going around about Meryl Streep for years that, oh, Meryl, she gets nominated every year. And when they finally gave her the prize about a decade ago for the Iron Lady, she hadn't actually won in about 30 years. There's a similar thing going on with both Spielberg and Williams right now. I think the last time Williams won, it might have been Schindler's List. At the very least, it was a very long time ago. And I wonder, for the reason that Louis cited, because he, you know, Williams did at one point say this is probably my last film. Then he's making noises in the press that he's unretiring. We'll see if that comes to pass. He is no spring chicken, but he's clearly still at the height of his powers. If indeed people are thinking this may be it for him, similar to Spielberg, I would not be surprised if this was the the sentimental winner and a deserving sentimental winner.
3: I mean, if you're looking at the Grammys as a comparison with Bonnie Raitt winning the best song, I mean, I think even Bonnie Raitt was very surprised (laughs) at, at that. But there is a respect and levity to being there throughout the entire history of of, of a movement of trends and uh, continuing to rise above and have your own sound. And I, I think it's really interesting, like the the contrast between everything everywhere all at once and the Fablemans, and how one really lynches on to new sounds, new experiences, new discoveries, and the other lynching on a very old solid, beautiful friendship and love for the composing of a film.
1: Chris, uh, every year we kind of talk about kind of the game of the awards and like, right. what's what's the strategy here? It's hard not to think about that. It, but with John Williams, it, with these awards, it's often hard to tell if, is it for the film or is it a, like a lifetime achievement award where they're kind of making up all of the, the taking the summation of this person's body of work and and saying Let's get them up on stage and, and give them some hardware. I think the score's great. It's not like E.T. or it's not... You wouldn't call it iconic. No, no, exactly. There's no theme
2: here that's going to recur the way some John Williams themes. I mean, for crying out loud, the man wrote Star Wars. You know, like there are John Williams themes that will live on for centuries. And this is not one of them.
1: And and I think, too, that like Hollywood loves movies about movies and it's this kind of process like obsession that seems to really like take center stage at award night maybe that will be the thing that makes something like the Fablemans super uh popular come award night i just think that it, I, this movie really moved me as just like a huge fan of both of their bodies of work and that's not like a big statements like i'm a big fan of steven spielberg <laughs> it's like, yeah everybody. well
2: yes and no because the thing about spielberg there's an interesting article on slate right now uh, that's an excerpt from michael shulman's new book about the history of the oscars where he says that spielberg has been kind of cursed you want to talk about footage of steven spielberg one of the most famous pieces of footage of steven spielberg is the morning in 1976 i think it was that the academy award nominations were being announced and a very young i think 30 year old steven spielberg thought he was going to sweep the nominations for jaws mm-hmm. he didn't get nominated for director he only got nominated for picture and many lost many other awards the guy's been chasing after awards his whole career you know, he also got nominated 11 times for The Color Purple and lost all of the prizes. There was a long running theme in Hollywood of this guy's a billionaire. We don't need to give him prizes. So actually pointing out, hey, by the way, Steven Spielberg is a great filmmaker and he deserves to be on the on a pedestal. Yeah. is It's not a radical concept, but it is something that needs to be said because there are still people who grumble about Steven Spielberg. So okay. for what it's worth.
1: I, for one, will say it. He's good.
3: <laughs> the guy's good, right? <laughs> <laughs> He's good.
1: <laughs> yeah, here, here. Any other
0: film scores that caught your ear from 2022?
2: I think we might be remiss not mentioning the score to Wakanda Forever. For what it's worth, it's been either number one or number two on Billboard's Top Soundtracks chart for most of the last couple months. Now, frankly, largely that is due to the inclusion of the Rihanna song "Lift Me Up," which you know people are consuming the hell out of that because it's Rihanna. But the whole score by Ludwig Gornson uh, has been praised and, and rightly. And there's a mind mill between Gornson and um, director Ryan Kugler. That is one of the more fruitful director-composer relationships in film right now. That very clearly could have been a nominee. That's the first that leaps to mind for me anyway.
3: I mean, I was blown away by Elvis, just like all the inner workings and experimentation. And it was really, really incredible. And I also liked Avatar too. Like it was just beautiful. (laughs) I don't think it's going to win awards, but wow, if you get your 3D glasses on and you're in IMAX, you're just listening. It's a wonderful ride.
1: Yeah, I really didn't want to like it, but I thought that Michael Giacchino's score for the Batman was quite good. You know, I think everybody is in the Hans Zimmer shadow in this category, superhero movies. Um, And I think that you know, this film and the score started to carve out maybe a new interpretation. Obviously, it's related and you can't get too far afield when you're dealing with, you know, Batman. But I was like, OK, maybe we're moving in a bit of a new direction. And that's kind of exciting to me, especially where, you know, the, the shadow of Zimmer and Nolan interpretation of, of these big superhero movies and their scores is very Iterative, I guess, with the exception of of Ludwig um, you You're right, but the Batman score was kind of a a little bit of a nice breath of fresh air. I think
2: I co-signed that, and I was also impressed with the way the Nirvana song "Something in the Way" was woven into that score as a motif. I had a theme as I came out of that movie that that version of the batman was trying to recreate the vibe of the mid 90s it felt very much like seven or a david fincher movie from then mm. and i felt like the the Giacchino score and the use of nirvana was part of the sort of peak grunge aesthetic that they were going for and i i do think that score was very effective
1: it's a great point point. and also i think it knows what it's doing with the zimmer stuff where it's supposed to be in relation to that because the zimmer score the famous da da it does it a third up and this one goes down, da, da. interesting. And it's just, it just lets you know, like when they go up, we're going down. Huh. A lot of people are like, that sounds a little bit like Darth Vader's theme, which it's the same interval, and I think that was dis- distracting to a lot of people. But yeah, I just am a big dork for moments where composers are kind of chirping at each other f- from their films.
0: On that note, we'll call it a wrap. Please don't tell any of my other guests,
1: but this is always one of my favorite episodes.
3: We won't tell anybody.
1: This is the only podcast that I do a year, so this is automatically my favorite one.
2: This is one of my favorites because I get to pretend I'm a movie expert once a year. It's great.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and the homework is fun too. And the homework yeah. is really fun.
3: This
0: was fun. Listeners, I also appreciate hearing which episodes are favorites of yours. You'll find my contact info at our website, below the line oneword.biz. That's B-I-Z. More Oscar goodness awaits, so please subscribe if you haven't already. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Wan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. To all of our listeners, I appreciate you. Please rate us wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends. Thanks again from below the line. I'm not going to use that. That's
1: just a marker. (laughs) Yep.